0: The following discussion is a reformatted podcast version of one of Ideas Roadshow's first 100 film conversations that's also available in video and print formats. Visit ideasroadshow.com for more details. Like many non-Americans, the particularly strong public role that organized religion plays in the United States has long bemused me, on the surface at least, It seems to represent a flagrant counterexample to Max Weber's celebrated thesis that the more scientifically and technologically sophisticated a society becomes, the less its needs for the so-called enchantment that organized religion provides. But UC Berkeley intellectual historian David Hollinger is convinced that it's considerably more complicated than that. In particular, he believes that in order to understand contemporary American religiosity, it's vital to develop a firm grasp of the relevant history and politics. I'm going to give you a candid admission, which is I pick up this book on ecumenical Protestantism and I thought, what the heck is this? I don't even know what this is. Um, And so For other people who may not be familiar with things, why don't we just start with a rough lay of the land, a rough groundwork as to what ecumenical Protestantism is is all about and its impact on American society.
1: Generally, we talk about the history of Protestantism in the United States as uh, operating on a two-party system, and the two parties uh, constitute themselves somewhat differently from century to century and generation to generation, but by and large the uh, fundamental difference is one between what, for lack of a better term, we can call conservative and liberal dispositions. So, in the 18th century you have a more rationalistic, enlightened style of Protestantism, which moves in Unitarian directions, and you have a more evangelical, revivalist uh, a strand. So you've got two parties then, and through the 19th century there are versions of this. Now in the 20th century, we have sort of two episodes in this, one of which is famous as the modernist fundamentalist dispute of the 1920s, where the modernists were people who were taking modern science very seriously and absorbed biblical criticism, accepting the Bible as a historical artifact written by people at many different times, and wanted to accommodate uh, religion with modern standards of cognitive plausibility. Whereas the fundamentalists uh, resisted all of this and took the Bible literally and said, this is the foundation on which we want to live. Now, the fundamentalist-modernist dispute which, of course, features all these quarrels about Darwin and the Scopes trial. That morphs, we might say, in the 1940s into the version of the two-party system which continues to this day. And this is the uh, ecumenical party as opposed to the evangelical party. Now, ecumenical is a term that comes into vogue partly because From the 1940s onward, the liberals, the people who were the most interested in modernity, who want religion to be up-to-date and to respond to modern challenges, these people are impatient with the sectarian divisions that divide different Protestant groups from one another. So they're eager to minimize those distinctions and to be ecumenical, to merge as the sense of ecumen, um, applying a sense of unity. So they begin establishing more and more transdenominational organizations, the Federal Council of Churches, the National Council of Churches, and the World Council of Churches, uh, Church World Service, and a variety of agencies that will enable Presbyterians, Methodists, and so forth, to work together. Now, in the meantime, while this ecumenical Protestantism is taking form, and I'll comment a little bit more about that in a moment, it is defined partly against what comes to be called evangelical Protestantism. Now, evangelical Protestantism is a direct inheritor of fundamentalism, But it includes other things that are not quite as uh, text-driven. When we talk about evangelical Protestantism, we are talking about a 1940s merger of fundamentalism with Pentecostalism, especially, and other kinds of uh, emotionally-centered Protestantism. So, the Pentecostals are organized around the second chapter of Acts, from which I took actually the title for After Cloven Tongues of Fire, uh, at the time when all of the saints are able to speak to one another, as if in their own languages, because of the intervention of the Holy Spirit. Now, Pentecostals are not driven by the rest of the text. They are uh, focusing on the emotions that are authorized by just a couple of texts, especially that one from the second chapter of Acts. The fundamentalists uh, believe in the Bible as a whole, so their challenge is to show how even the book of of, of, um, of Leviticus, which has all these uh, wacky uh, rules for how you're supposed to live, can be reconciled with the Sermon on the Mount in uh, the gospel, in the Matthew Gospel of the New Testament. So they... Because there's they, no
0: way you can parse this. That's things, right. They no...
1: want the whole thing together. Right. See, so well, evangelical Protestantism draws from fundamentalism or gets most of its leadership, but yet liberalizes in a fashion. So the great figure for evangelical Protestantism would be somebody like Billy Graham. So you have a kind of... Um, Basic gospel. Uh, it's not elaborate. It's not intellectually ambitious, but you certainly it's Bible-centered. So you affirm the authority of the Bible, and you have a a, a series of revival-centered. You 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 match the emotionalism of the Pentecostals with the text uh, uh, loyalty of the fundamentalists. Now the the reason I talk about evangelicals in that way is that <clears throat> the best way to understand ecumenical Protestantism is in terms of its rivalry with the evangelicals. So these two, especially beginning in 1942, begin to define themselves in relation to one another. 1942 is important because of two events that happened at that time. One, the people who are moving in an ecumenical direction are preoccupied with what the world is gonna look like after World War II. The
0: institutions, That's except for right. the United Nations, all the rest
1: Precisely. of it. <clears throat> Precisely. So a group of ecumenical Protestants who had been pacifists, and a group of ecumenical Protestants who had been, we often call them realists, uh, more concerned with sort of standard exercise of power in the world. These people who'd been quarreling in the 30s about peace and war, they sort of bury the hatchet and they're together in the early 1940s. They have a big conference in 1942, in which these ecumenical Protestants outline what is a quite a radical <clears throat> program for what the world should look like after the war. So they want they're very critical of the British Empire, they're critical of colonialism, they're critical of racism, they're critical of nationalism, so this is a big push toward what becomes the United Nations. And they're in favor of Presbyterians and Episcopalians and Methodists and Baptists and so forth working together.
0: Now, seeking common ground for these ideas, yeah, for these, ideals, that's for these right. human ideals.
1: Precisely. Now, the evangelicals, in the meantime, <clears throat> are very suspicious of the social engagements of the ecumenicals. In other words, all this stuff about emphasizing what's going on in the world, we should be focusing rather on human hearts. The trouble with the ecumenicals, say the evangelicals, is that they're too interested in worldly institutions. So uh, the gospel, as we're told uh, uh, by Jesus himself to preach it, requires that we go out and uh, get people to accept Christ. So our priority should be preaching, not all this institutional development. And what is this United Nations stuff? I mean, human rights, I mean, what really matters is uh, Jesus and bringing people to Christ. So while the ecumenicals become more and more uh, broad-minded, more and more worldly, more and more eager to engage religiously projects like the United Nations and uh, the disarmament, ways in which to make the world better institutionally, The evangelicals hold back from that and say, uh, look, what matters is changing human hearts. So instead of all this institutional stuff, let's do this. Now the ecumenical Protestants and the evangelical Protestants then divide on a number of issues precisely those lines. The great example, which is of the most interest to most historians, is civil rights for black people where you have a lot of these ecumenical Protestants way out there. In 1946, their organization comes out against Jim Crow, says we need legal changes for this. Now at that time, the evangelicals are saying, what we need to do is to change human hearts. Racism is a sin of the heart. Uh, So we don't need laws on this, we need to change things first. So as you go down through the late 1950s and the 1960s then, These ecumenical Protestants are are shoulder to shoulder with Martin Luther King, and he's one of them. Martin Luther King is a classic ecumenical Protestant, and a lot of these guys go down in his demonstrations, and they're uh, thrown into jail with him and so forth, whereas the evangelicals think this is pushing too hard. The evangelicals are also grounded more in a southern demography, so that has something to do with this. There's a huge educational gap between them and a regional gap. And This notion so, of
0: genteel,
1: whatever. Well, genteel is part of it, but the, um, for example, if you look at, um, at the constituency that Billy Graham builds from about 1947, 48 on down through, his career then begins to decline in the nineties when he's very old. But the, uh, the, the, the constituency that the evangelicals have, which is Billy Graham's constituency, is primarily not exclusively, but primarily people from the small towns and the small cities of the South and the Midwest, white people from, that, from those communities of moderate education who have been born into families that are at least nominally Protestant and usually in this fundamentalist evangelical tradition rather than these liberal traditions. Now, <clears throat> the evangelicals Generally, do not appeal. Again, this is very general, but as a as a as an overall sociological fact, it's irrefutable. The evangelicals generally do not draw from big city dwellers, from the really impoverished uh, rural uh, uh, poor. They do not draw from uh, academics. They do not draw from uh, uh, secularists. They do not draw industrial workers. They do not draw from uh, ethno-racial minorities. So the constituency for the evangelicals, even though there are urban dimensions to it, is very much small town, small city, and suburban. Now, the ecumenical constituency is a much more highly educated constituency from the beginning, and it's churches that have established fairly strong class position. So if you look at the United States in 1950, the ecumenicals are the strongest among the Episcopalians, the Unitarians, the Northern Presbyterians, the Northern Baptists, the Methodists, and to some extent, the Disciples of Christ. Whereas the fundamentalists are stronger among the Assembly of God, Christian Missionary Alliance, uh, a variety of, uh, you know, um, uh, steeped in the blood of the Lamb Baptists. I mean, there are a variety of these uh, uh, Pentecostal and fen- fundamentalist fellowships that, that merge into uh, evangelicalism. So there's, there's, a, there's a class difference, an educational difference, mm. which is uh, there are exceptions to it. So ecumenical Protestantism then, to return to your original question, comes out of a long liberal tradition in American religious history, which is given point by the issues over which they disagreed with the Evangelicals beginning in the 1940s. So this book of mine, After Cloven Tongues of Fire, is organized especially around what happens to ecumenical Protestants during this period since World War II and the kind of role that they played in American life.
0: Well, what surprises me, or what surprised me when when I read your book? I think can be categorized in two different ways. From the outsider's perspective, and again, Canada, the mission is notwithstanding my accent, I, I'm not an American. Uh, close by, but I'm not an American. Um, but one tends to regard America as this religious, crazy country. If you look at it globally, if you look at it from Europe, or you look at it from Canada, or you look at it from Australia, New Zealand, or what have you, there's a sense that it's a country that has a, a that, where religion. Organized religion plays, broadly defined, plays a disproportionately large role in, in the state and in the hearts and minds of the people in this increasingly secular age. Yep. That's the sense that, yep. that people have. Um, so the surprising aspect is, well, you have to actually look more carefully at what we mean by organized religion. And what most people had in, have in mind, and what I certainly had in mind, was evangelical right. Christianity. Right. And so there was a real lack of appreciation on my part for these two parties, the battles that, that happened, mm-hmm. as you've described, um, and so that's point number yeah. one. Point right. number two is there was a lack of appreciation of how strong and how powerful and how influential members of this ecumenical Protestant uh, group actually had to play on American policy, on global right. policy, as public intellectuals, as advisors to government, as, as people so, who Really made a, a tremendous impact on the growing culture of the United States, not only from the from the post World War II era onwards, but also uh, even before then. And so there's a there's a real subtlety there, which I think mm-hmm. is lost on a lot of people. It was certainly lost on me. One example that you didn't give, you mentioned civil rights, which is presumably the best. But one example that I thought was very illustrative mm-hmm. was this notion of missionaries and how the, uh, as I understand it, the ecumenical uh, Christians, after the war, were pulling back on missionaries because they regarded the missionary movement as fostering imperialism, which is something that they, uh, they thought was a bad idea because, again, they were looking at these universal, universal rights. Um, and so there was a gap where the evangelicals, in a way, rushed in, and increasing numbers of um, of missionaries became of an evangelical disposition. So again, for me, I thought, well, that's really very mm-hmm. interesting because now I'm getting a sense of uh, uh, of these ideals that resonate so much with my particular ideals. Imperialism is a bad thing. Racism is right. a bad thing. Oppression of women is a bad thing. You right. know, all these things are bad things, and I think these guys actually believed a lot of. They, they certainly uh, reflected the, the opinions and values and ideals which were triumphant in the secular world globally. And so uh, that was something which sure. was com- completely, completely unknown <clears throat> to me. Uh, again, it's, it's maybe a sad admission for me to
1: make. but <laughs> well, I don't think, uh, I mean, there are a lot of people who don't know about that. Uh, first, about the missionaries, indeed, quarrels about what missions should be is one of the huge things that um, animated the evangelicals and the ecumenists, because the ecumenical Protestants, uh, very early on, begin to be worried about cultural imperialism, and they increasingly move their missionary endeavors away from uh, preaching and conversion toward social services and education. So they build all these hospitals. I mean, Chow and Lai used to talk about the magnificent contribution that the missionaries had made to China because of all these colleges and medical schools, and there are a number of examples like that uh, throughout the world. And the evangelicals, in the meantime, get very fed up with these ecumenists for giving up on preaching, and there are a number of quite fierce battles about that, all the way from the 1920s down through the 1960s, by which time the ecumenists are largely out of the business of missions, and uh, there are more American missionaries abroad in the world right now than any time in American history, but um, they are evangelicals, and they're, they're graduates of uh, Biola and Wheaton instead of, of Princeton and uh, and Yale, the way they used to be. I'll come back to the missionaries in a moment. I want to pick up on a couple of other things that you said. I think your um, image is correct about the United States as a much more um, religiously engaged society than any of the societies of, uh, of Northwestern Europe. Um, and um, I was struck that when I, I gave some lectures in Denmark this last year, I mentioned in passing that one of the uh, great figures in American history in the 1930s through the 1960s, Reinhold Niebuhr, uh, believed that uh, Christianity was the only viable foundation for democracy, that there were more Enlightenment-oriented or an, uh, oriented versions of democracy, but they would all ultimately fail unless they became Christian. So I was alluding this not to endorse it, but to explain that this was an important part of American history. And so there are all these young Danes there at, um, at, uh, at the University of, well, actually this one was out of Odensee, and they, um, they're thinking, well now wait a minute, we've got a democracy here. Uh, gee, I don't know any Christians. So the, my description of this <clears throat> played about as well with the Danish undergraduates. As if I'd have said, well, you know, on my way here to give this lecture, there was a delay in Copenhagen because um, a spaceship landed and there were Martians (laughs) all over town and the cops couldn't get me through. I mean, the level of of incongruity was comparable, which is to say your image is right. Now, this leads to what I think is a really fascinating question about how different the United States is from Western Europe. Often we talk about American exceptionalism, and I'm not sure that term helps us that much. But the big issue is secularization. So we've been saying for many years that uh, the society, the industrialized societies of Northwestern Europe have become very secularized. The United States is also a highly industrial society. There are many things about it that are very much like England, Denmark, Germany, Sweden, the Netherlands. But yet, there are all these people who are still religious. Now, <clears throat> it is often asserted. I think wrongly, but it's very common nowadays to say that American history disproves secularization theory, that the old idea that once you have um, uh, greater physical safety, once you have uh, more income distribution, Once you have greater technology and greater political participation, all the aspects of classical modernization, once you have that, people like Weber and so forth said that religion would become less important. So it is said that the United States disproves this. I don't think that's so. I believe it's possible to um, see how the same mechanisms that have advanced secularization in the industrialized societies of Western Europe have done the same in the United States, but at slower pace. And the difference, the chief difference, two things, really. There's a constitutional and a demographic consideration. Now, the constitutional consideration is that you've got church-state separation from the time the Constitution is adopted in the late 18th century onward. The significance of that is that um, the need that people have for intimacy and belonging for communities, um, uh, for voluntary societies, is more easily met in the United States by religiously defined communities and affiliations than it is in Europe, because in Europe, religion is traditionally part of the state because of all these established churches. So, <clears throat> and,
0: and also, as you yeah, mentioned, yeah. In, the, in the 18th century, it was the only declaration That's that right. actually didn't refer to God.
1: Absolutely. So what happens is that the United States, the US Constitution doesn't have God in it, and <clears throat> there's no established church, and the various states, the few that had Established churches do away with them by the beginning of the 1830s. So, But what happens as a result of that is that um, religiously affiliated communities become more available to the public than in Europe because you can become part of these without associating them with civic power. So there's an independent. So Tocqueville was right in the 1830s to talk about this, about religion and voluntary society in the United States. So there's a, there's a constitutional thing that makes religion more important in the United States, paradoxically, since we don't have an established church. So voluntary societies. Now the second thing that makes <clears throat> the United States different <clears throat> is demographic, and that is that the United States as a settler society is dominated from the beginning by dissenting Protestants, which is to say Protestants who dissent from the Church of England, Protestants who dissent from the Lutheran Church in Sweden or in Germany. And so you have then, uh, in the United States, you have Episcopalians, okay, you have Lutherans, but you have vast numbers of these Presbyterians and Methodists and Congregationalists and Baptists and Quakers. And right from the get-go, in the late 18th century, these are the people in the settler society that are mostly in charge. They have social power, they have the class position. So the folks that are running the society from the beginning come from a more religious-than-thou point of view, you might say. They begin as really involved in religion, as dissenting Protestants, even though they're doing this under this constitutional thing. So, So as the country goes on then, there is more religion to be overcome, and it's crucial to understand that the United States is radically different from any of the societies of Northwestern Europe in that it is overwhelmingly an immigrant-receiving society. So, you have the immigrants that come in from all of these countries and uh, they are more in need of communities to provide intimacy and belonging than is the case with those American inhabitants who inherit a proprietary relation to the land. So, um, so the, the, all these immigrants come in, and since religion is available to them as a way of establishing their voluntary societies, the constitutional aspect of this and the demographic aspect <clears throat> work together. So you get all these immigrants coming in from Ireland and they become really Catholic here because this is a way to establish their community. And also, the Irish don't have any trouble figuring out that the institutions of the society are biased against Catholics. They're run by all these Congregationalists and Presbyterians who don't like Catholics. So religion becomes very important to a lot of the Catholic population, and all these different kinds of Protestants that come in from Europe. They establish their own little communities. So religion has an additional power in the United States because it's an immigrant receiving society. This combination of things, I argue, enable uh, people to continue in their religious affiliations for a longer period, even while experiencing all of the classic syndromes in modernization that apply to England, Germany, and the Netherlands. Now all that said, there's a very interesting sort of postscript recently and that is that finally um, the statistics are catching up. If you look at American poll data of the last 15 or 20 years, religious affiliation and religious identity is declining precipitously. So the last set of polls show that Something like 20% of the population of the United States assert no religious affiliation whatsoever. Mm. Now, that's a long way from what it is in the Netherlands or Belgium, but, uh, but it's a rate it's, of change. It, and it's way. statistically significant. Mm. So, <clears throat> if you argue, as I do, that the history of the United States does not refute classic secularization theory but vindicates it. Um, These recent events are consistent uh, with that. But part of the story as well, to allude to something that you mentioned uh, a while ago, uh, religion in the United States includes all these liberals, all these ecumenical Protestants, and all these liberal Catholics. And the popular image of religion that you get from Europe is that it's not really religion unless it's kind of wacky. And so you have this notion of these Bible-thumping characters and uh, people who are ignoramuses. Well, uh, Reinhold Niebuhr was not an ignoramus. And uh, a lot of the people who led ecumenical Protestantism were uh, uh, well-educated and uh, really tried to come up with versions of Christianity that would be consistent with modern science and social science. So you have this liberalization now. But that was then. That's right. And I think that... The liberal Protestantism as we're talking about it, uh, ecumenical Protestantism, is among other things a halfway house to secularism. So it's a place where a lot of people can be in the United States under the circumstances that I've described for a couple of generations maybe. But gradually the need for the religious part of it drops out. That's why since the 1960s, Uh, The ecumenical churches have declined so much much more than the evangelical search churches The ecumenical churches and their numbers have declined in part because they're already so far towards secularization that they can move Easily into that whereas the evangelicals are still fighting this It's also the case that the evangelicals um, resisted Uh, modern liberal views of the gender distinction. And so women were supposed to be in the home. So, uh, and the result of this was huge differences in birth rates. So ecumenical women, by the, if you take the whole baby boom era from about 1947 uh, down through the, uh, the 1970s, ecumenical women would often have many fewer children than evangelical women. So, uh, this also accounts for the decline in numbers and for the robustness of the evangelical Protestants in the United States. Mm -hmm. Also, the evangelicals had the idea that um, um, people should stick with home truths. Uh, You should avoid the acids of modernity and that uh, the old verities are really right whereas the ecumenists were more inclined to urge their children to Experience modernity. Make up your own mind. So this has a lot to do with how it is that the religion in the United States has become more and more evangelical because the evangelicals are still doing this stuff, whereas the ecumenicals are losing it. So you might say that if there is such a thing as the spiritual capital of Christianity, that spiritual capital is increasingly in the control of the evangelicals. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that the ecumenicals are losing it, it's just that they're gaining other things. So that the post-Protestants, as I like to call them, are all these folks that were raised in an ecumenical environment and now are increasingly secular. But it's not as though that background doesn't mean anything to them. So there is a kind of continuity there. But the ecumenical Protestants, to sort of summarize this that we're talking about, the ecumenical Protestants <clears throat> move very strongly in an Enlightenment, rationalist, scientific, liberal direction, and uh, adapt uh, all these modern ideas, and the evangelicals resist that for a very long time, and so you get this two-party system right down to the present.
0: But And there's this play, there's this interchange, it seems, between withdrawing from the world and engaging in the world. from. Having your home truths, uh, having your uh, literal interpretation of the Bible, and going out and engaging with the world. Right. And my understanding is that's that's really a reference uh, to the title of your, of your book. In fact, because it's uh, it's not. Uh, you mentioned the, the the cloven tongues of fire and the in the biblical episode yep. where people can understand right. each other and go against the this babble notion right. that people are, are impenetrable because they can speak in the word of Christ and right. they can understand one another. And then the question is, well, what do you do after that? Right. And, and how do you, do you take this knowledge of loosely put christian values and apply it to the world and engage in the world and my understanding is that's a core aspect of what the ecumenical project absolutely was, was really all about so let's get back to this yep. this rhino uh, niebuhr uh, right. guy right. and and the bewilderment of these danes who, right. who were which was equivalent to spaceship's landing and so that's forth. right because to me this is a really important point to emphasize because it makes complete sense so one can say now, well, that's crazy. You know, Of course, these, these values that we hold true as secular values and principles, the universal rights of man, and, 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 and colonialism is, and oppression is a bad thing, and racism is a bad thing, and, 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 and helping people who are less fortunate, and so forth. Um, of course, there's no particular reason to associate that with Christianity, as right. Reinhold did. But turned on its head, it seems that's an absolutely necessary thing for him to have said. Because otherwise, the argument is, well, look, if you're just picking these values that, yeah, may have been mentioned in the Bible and so forth, then what do we need Christianity for at all? So it seems to me it was essential for him to maintain that position, that he could envelop tolerance. He could say, yes, all roads lead to this. We will will have nice conversations with Buddhists, and we'll have conversations with all these people. We're not going to be we're not going to put up barriers and walls. We want to move forwards to explore human institutions and human values. But at the end of the day, of course, it only really makes sense from a Christian context. It seems he had to have said that in order to to not devolve into to rampant
1: secularism. Well when you've got when you've got a society that is as heavily invested in Protestant Christianity as the United States is, as of say, the 1930s, and then uh, you know you sense that there are all these modern stuff that you've really got to get onto somehow. Um, Uh, The notion of using the Christian Protestant inheritance as a means for engaging all of this modernity, rather than just throwing yourself out in what was often perceived to be a chaos of secularism, very important function. That's why um, I wrote this book, actually, to make clear that ecumenical Protestantism was a hugely important aspect of 20th century American history, and that it is usually ignored because we just talk about the rise of evangelical Protestantism, forgetting the role of ecumenical Protestantism, which enabled millions and millions of Americans to engage questions and aspects of modern life that they would not have felt comfortable engaging had they not been provided by people like Reinhold Niebuhr with a Protestant framework for so doing. Now that's not to say that there's a, a teleological aspect to this. That's not to say that everybody who enters ecumenical Protestantism is going to reject the faith and become a full secularist. But it is to say that a lot of people will do that, and that's okay if it enables them to continue to function themselves psychologically and to be socially productive in society. But there'll be others who will stay with uh, Protestant liberalism. I don't think that Protestant liberalism is gonna die. I mean, for the foreseeable future, there will be a bunch of people who are uh, for that. That's the case even in England, in the Netherlands, less so in Denmark. Denmark is one of the most secular societies in the world. But even there, there are a handful of these uh, liberal clerics around. So an advantage of liberal Protestantism, of all its varieties, is that it's there for people who want that particular kind of combination. But the big point that I want to make, and I'm so glad that you've uh, uh, picked this up from my book, is that if we want to understand the history of the United States in the 20th century, um, we've got to confront ecumenical Protestantism because it is the foundation for so many of the things that happen. <clears throat> and you know, nowadays, it's, it's, it's easy to forget this. I mean, like on the Supreme Court, there are six Catholics uh, and there's nobody on the Supreme Court who was born into a Protestant family. Now, this would have been unconceivable. As, uh, I mean, when, when Kennedy ran for president in 1960, and there's all this flap about what we're going to do about the Catholics taking over the country and so forth, I mean, uh, I mean, I can't quote anybody specific who said this, but it would have been very logical for people to say, oh, well, sooner or later, we'll have six Catholics on the Supreme Court. And then everybody would say, bigot, you know, this is paranoia. I mean, this is outrageous. Um, you're not sufficiently respectful of Catholics. So, but the, this transition has happened. But I, I, I use that as a dramatic example <clears throat> to remind us how thoroughly Protestant, at least nominally, the American establishment used to be. In the year 1960, if you were in charge of something big, and if you had an opportunity to influence its direction in the foundations, in universities, in museums, in the courts, in the Congress, in the White House, in federal agencies, in corporations, if you were in charge of something big, you were almost certainly to have been raised in a liberal Protestant milieu, in the the milieu of the Presbyterians and the Episcopalians and so forth. Obvious exceptions to this. I mean, you have Jews on the Supreme Court going back to Brandeis and Frankfurter, so there are exceptions to this. Uh, uh, Prominent uh, 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 Jewish industrialists, okay, and uh, Catholics gradually. Catholics come into higher class position much later so there are exceptions to it, but, never... but, there, but there are exceptions yeah. to a rule, which is just, um, and one of the reasons I think that today people are a little bit slow to pick up on this and maybe to uh, confront it as frontally as I try to do in my work, is that we're a little bit afraid that um, <clears throat> this will happen again. I mean, we're so glad to have a pluralistic society, which is free of the old Protestant hegemony, and if you talk too much about all these Protestant contributions to American history, maybe you will devalue all the non protestant uh, So I'm saying that's a... Well,
0: I don't think historic- so. I, I think people just yeah. don't have any memory. I
1: maybe that, maybe <laughs> they don't. Maybe they don't. <laughs> well, okay. then I feel better about that. <clears throat> but the, the, um, but it, is, uh, it is an empirical fact that uh, America was a deeply Protestant civilization for a very long time. And understanding its liberal part as well as its reactionary part is is important, but you know something you you mentioned a while ago I was eager to pick up on a little bit because um, uh, you know you're talking about these the, the, the missionary experience and uh, I'm actually writing a book about that now, and one of the things that's so important about Protestant missionaries is that <clears throat> there they are the Americans who learn the most the earliest, about the world outside the North Atlantic West. And so nowadays, when we're so uh, preoccupied with globalization, with um, uh, the species-wide questions like the environment and global warming and, uh, and the need to recognize the integrity of cultures around the world to overcome uh, provincial biases, when we're so concerned with that, It's interesting in that contest to trace back American society's interaction with this world outside the North Atlantic West. And although now there are a number of people who are engaged with this, who are not missionaries, if you go back uh, to, say, the period before World War II, yes, you had some diplomats abroad, yes, you had some business connections abroad, a little bit of military, And there were some journalists, there were some travel writers. But overwhelmingly, the majority of what the average American knew about Asia or Africa or Brazil came from missionaries. Mm -hmm. These were the point people, you might say, in the American involvement with the rest of the world. So when they come back from China, from um from uh, uh, South Africa, or wherever, they then bring into their uh, church communities uh, and into their transdenominational organizations <clears throat> a, um, a set of concerns. They come back and they say uh, stuff like, well, you know, we're very worried about the difference between Congregationalists and Presbyterians. And we're very worried about the difference between Northern Baptists and Southern Baptists. But let me tell you, when you're in China and you're trying to explain Christianity to these Chinese, that doesn't make sense to them. So we have a lot of Dutch Reformed missionaries in Japan. We also have a lot of German Reformed missionaries in Japan, two very prominent American organizations. But yet, to try to explain to a Japanese potential convert why they should become a Dutch Reformed Christian rather than a German Reformed Christian. So then there's enormous tension that's built up uh, where the cosmopolitan missionaries and their children, who are a very important part of this story, I'll give some examples in a moment, the cosmopolitan missionaries and their children then come back to a society that had sent them abroad for the purpose of making the rest of the world more like them. We who live in Nashville, we who live in Dayton, Ohio, we who live in St. Paul, Worcester, Massachusetts, and so forth, we know what Christianity is. We may embody it imperfectly, but we know what it is. We have it. The Chinese don't have it. The Congolese don't have it. Okay, we need missionaries to go over there and make them like us. So then the missionaries come back. And they say, well, you know, I'm not sure that what they really need is to be like us. They need stuff, but do you know much about the civilization of China? Let me tell you about the Confucian tradition. And so then some guy will stand up in the pew and say, we here in Terre Haute, we did not send you to China to come back here and tell us how interesting the Chinese are. So the tension between the cosmopolitan missionaries and the provincial churchgoers (coughs) becomes more and more intense. And the missionaries begin arguing that the whole missionary project needs to be uh, reconfigured. It's the missionaries themselves and their children that push this the hardest. So somebody like Pearl Buck, perhaps the most famous of the missionary children, uh, you know, right after she writes her, uh, you know, her big book that wins the Nobel Prize, um, uh, um, uh, *The Good Earth*, in 1931, through the 1930s. She's going around saying uh, the whole missionary project has got to be reformed. Now, she is pretty much pushed out of the Presbyterian Church for this, <clears throat> but she's not alone. There are a lot of people like her. The rule of thumb, as with all rules of thumb, there are important exceptions to this. The rule of thumb is the more missionary experience you have, the more deeply embedded you were in the Chineseness, the Africanness, the Japanese-ness, whatever you are, then the more critical you are of the missionary project itself and the more skeptical you are about the sectarianism of American Protestant Christianity. Hence, these are the leaders of the ecumenical movement. These are the people that push the Presbyterians and the Northern Baptists and the Methodists further in the ecumenical direction. Is it really so important that baptism occur in a certain way? now the baptists do it one way the episcopalians do it another of course it's important say a lot of people in the pew we've been doing this for centuries our preacher has told us how important this is we've educated our children in our sunday school to do it this way so then the missionaries say well okay but maybe we need to change that a little bit maybe that's wrong so the <clears throat> the tension between them is very important and leads to uh, a globalization and internationalization of the ecumenical Protestants, which is not participated in by the evangelical Protestants okay. until the 1970s and 80s. They begin to copy the, even, the the ecumenical Protestants by the 1970s and 80s, but still, it's a struggle. How, how do they
0: copy them? Because I would have thought that they would be quite different.
1: Well, well, they copy them in 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 the sense that by by the time. <clears throat> There's a big conference of evangelical missionary leaders in Switzerland in 1974 at Luzon. And what has been happening is that the evangelical missionaries has have been increasingly subject to criticism for not having strong enough social service programs and for being so exclusively into conversion. So that's partly the liberal Protestants who have been making this complaint. Mm-hmm. And a number of the younger, evangelical missionaries uh, and their supporters are troubled by this. So Billy Graham and the other people that are sort of in charge of American ecumenical Protestantism and their European allies, they set up this conference specifically to make a compromise. And they do. And they come out with like 18 or 19 principles, one of which is that, uh the diminution of inequality and uh, poverty in uh, in the world is an important Christian mission. Now, if you'd have said that in uh, like 1935, the fundamentalists would have hit the ceiling because the liberalists were saying that and they were attacked. But by the 1970s, even the evangelicals begin to move gradually in that direction. So the evangelical missionary projects that you've had from the 70s down through the present are actually increasingly modeled on the old ecumenical missionary projects, but they are heavily in denial. So I've interviewed a number of people that are involved in this, and they will say, oh yeah, we still believe in conversion, we still believe in the the Bible as before. Uh, So they will cover themselves on this. But from the view at 30,000 feet, which is what we historians are supposed to be good at, I see all sorts of de facto continuities. The evangelicals are always afraid to admit that they're following the liberals, so this is just as the, as the ecumenical Protestants are usually afraid to admit how secular they're becoming. So, there are, are, are existential reasons, you might say, vested interest reasons for these self-representations. But that must but give the, you
0: some a feeling of optimism, in a sense, because, because I mean it yeah. means that these people are becoming more open-minded. They they're are more sensitive to the people on they the are. ground. They are more aware of the issues at stake. They and so
1: definitely forth. are that. I mean, <clears throat> it's a struggle, but they're definitely moving that way, and that's again consistent with my argument that classic secularization theory is rather more right. And if you if you look today as a, a bracket, what I'm talking about, and say something about secularization theory again, the people who want to say secularization theory is dead will say. Look at the enormous growth of Christianity all over the global south. Look at the Christians in the Congo. Look at the Christians in, in Sri Lanka and so forth. Well, okay. What kind of Christians are they? I mean, and also, these are impoverished people. These are people without physical security. These are people with very little education. These are people with only spotty technology. So, all of the classic Weberian secularization theory. Uh, a criteria <laughs> by all of them they're consistent with that right. so so I think and there's also a question <clears throat> as to how broad you know what what purchase do we get on the average congregation in South India or in Zimbabwe what purchase do we get by calling these people Christians well they invoke Christian symbols they declare themselves to be followers of Christ But uh, how similar is their culture to the culture of the Christianity in the North Atlantic West? Uh, There's a real question there. So many of the people who say that Christianity is triumphing rather than declining count everybody. So you count everybody who makes the declaration. And you don't distinguish between, on the one hand, say, the Unitarians in the US, or on the other hand, these people in uh, some of these churches. I I heard a great paper at the uh, American Historical Association a few years ago where this guy, and this is an extreme case, he was talking about a church in South India that he'd been studying, and one of the most famous uh, evangelists in South India, uh, who is a South Indian uh, native himself, indigenous person was explaining how um, he'd just gotten back from heaven, and uh, he'd, he'd had a just terrific conversation with uh, with the apostle paul, and then people would ask him questions of, "Oh well, did you see Saint Peter? yes yeah, I saw saint Peter what's he like uh, well, so forth and so forth and then they would go through the disciples and this guy would talk about how he had been to heaven and seen these people well now what what did the apostle Paul have to say oh, oh Paul has some very good ideas about church organization actually so Okay, now this is, <clears throat> now is this, what, what help do, do we really get any help by calling this guy uh, part of the same religious formation as even Billy Graham, God Save the Mark, to say nothing, Reinhold Niebuhr, or the people who run the World Council of Churches? So there are, uh, under the um, symbolic uh, rubric of Christianity, even of Protestantism, there's a great variety of things. Now, there's a uh, many of the religiously committed scholars study these differences conscientiously and effectively, and this is a great boon, uh, as secular scholars do. But very often, I find the religiously committed will be very eager to uh, sort of affirm the unity of all of the Christian uh, community, the faith community as a whole. Whereas I usually argue that the salient solidarity today is not the community of faith, but the epistemic and political community. This gets me involved in some very interesting uh, discussions at uh, workshops. Uh, Even though I'm a flaming atheist, I'm often invited to, um, to ecumenical Protestant gatherings. And uh, I will often suggest to these people that um, their real enemy is the evangelicals and those who advance obscurantist ideas about the faith. And their real allies are the secular liberals, and that there's a great continuity between what goes on in Union Theological Seminary, the Pacific School of Religion, the Chicago Div School, and the secular intelligentsia. Okay. So this is really your home, guys, say I. Uh, they resist this. Uh, they're very reluctant to give up on the community of faith as the relevant solidarity. So the slippery slope to secularism, and you can understand, keeping with what we've been saying, why this is a problem. That if you're, if you're a, uh, a, a clergyman, if you're a seminary president, if you're the professor of a seminary, you're, you've really got to stick with the program. So then this guy, Hollinger, comes along and says, well, you know, you could stick with the program, but you can still hang out with all us atheists and all these free thinkers and people who, you know, aren't terribly interested in religious issues, but we have a lot more continuity and we're all against misogyny and against colonialism and so forth. Uh, very reluctant because the <clears throat> to give up <coughs> on, their solidarity with the evangelicals uh, presents a terrible problem for them leadership wise I'm very sympathetic with this and the evangelicals but, of course are painting them and it's all all the
0: way down towards oh, secularism they, they say you, we're the real Christians precisely and, and you guys are just yeah the... if, if
1: you guys hang out with too many of these secularists I mean just think what's going to happen to you I mean this the, there's so many variations on this in the history of of Protestantism I like to uh to to joke about my own family, I had a uh, I had a uh, an aunt <coughs> who uh, in the Church of the Brethren, the German Baptist Brethren, my ancestral denomination. This was in Gettysburg, Pennsylvania. When she was fifteen years old in 1913, refused to wear the bonnet. <coughs> in those days, the the Pennsylvania Dutch, uh, the Amish, and the Brethren and the Mennonites all wore these. The women had to wear these bonnets. She wouldn't wear it, and. Uh, you know, the the, 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 uh, the Lutheran girls don't have to wear uh, bonnets. Uh, you know, the Presbyterian girls don't have to. Why do I have to wear it? Well, you know, the Brethren and the Mennonites wear these bonnets. So, so she's kicked out of the church at the age of 15. And it was said that, uh, that you know, only terrible things could befall her. And indeed they did. She married a Presbyterian and uh, <clears throat> this was bad enough but then just to show you that the old church ladies were right she had a daughter and the daughter married an episcopalian Wow! now this was tough enough but the woman who married the episcopalian had a daughter married a mormon now at this point the deity intervened and made the woman who married the mormon barren as they say in the bible because if she'd have had a daughter she might have married But you know, there was a similar Catholic thing in my own upbringing when I was a child in Idaho. Um, There was a kid across the street, this was when I was like six years old, who was from a Catholic family. And um, my mother, who was a very proud uh, ecumenical liberal, um, she was very proud that that she had her son uh, willing to play with this kid, Tony Ray Hangler was his name, I remember. So, so my mother said it's all right for David to play with Tony Ray. He's from a very nice Catholic family, and she would brag about this. She thought it was just great that she had a, that she was liberal enough to have her son play with. Him. Now, the church ladies were dubious about this, as she explained to me later. If your son spends too much time hanging out with Catholics, you know, uh, bad things are going to happen. You should stay with your own kind. Okay, they were right.
0: They were right. Look where <coughs> I You're grew at up. Berkeley. <laughs> I, be-
1: I, I, I become an atheist. Uh, 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 my daughter is gay, and my son married an Episcopalian. So, <clears throat> so it just shows once you deviate from the natal community, anything can happen. So <clears throat> you can see that this uh, tension that I write so much about. Between cosmopolitanism and provincialism, and provincialism exactly. is a very big thing in American history, and it's especially big in religious history. But because religion is a context in which people have these loyalties and these tensions. It, obviously.
0: But it's not just religious history. And this is something that I, mm-hmm. I wanted to to get to. You also introduced this term of demographic diversification. Right. And the same basic ideas that that if you have a set of beliefs and Uh, you claim some sort of universality for those beliefs. Well, you go out and you talk to people outside of your neighborhood, outside of your country, maybe even outside of your continent, and you find that people have wildly different ways of approaching the situation, wildly different beliefs, attitudes, customs. They look at you as as holding views that uh, may be reasonable, may be superfluous to their way of life. That might cause you to doubt, certainly, the universal necessity of your particular beliefs. Religion is an obvious domain where this happens, but it happens all over the place in all sorts of different areas. Um, And this is, uh, from from your account, these are are notions, this notion of what the values are within your provincial world, and then does it apply to a universal world, which applies in... Certainly, religious history. It applies in economics. It applies in other areas of ethics. Right. It it applies in empirical studies of, of all sorts of shades. And you talk about how you were influenced by uh, by somebody of, of Jewish descent, right. Joseph Levinson, right. who was actually studying China. That's right. And I <laughs> and applying the this metric or this, this filter or this this viewpoint to to studying to studying that. So it seems like. This is something which runs, dare I say, throughout the entire human condition, this notion of provincialism versus cosmopolitanism.
1: Yeah, sometimes it is called the water theory of liberalism, referring back to the times that people traveled mostly by water. So therefore, (coughs) seaports were traditionally the scenes of greater liberalization than (coughs) mountain cities. And there's still a little bit of this today, where you can see San Francisco and New York as rather different from, you know, say uh, Topeka, Kansas, yeah, or, to or yeah, that's right. <laughs> so <clears throat> again, with all these generalizations, there are lots of interesting exceptions to it, but uh, but there is a lot that a broadened experience will challenge. A presumption as to what's right will require some sort of readjustment. And that's, again, why ecumenical Protestantism is so important, because it is a frame of reference within which people can explore more and more of the world and find ways to bridge where they've been from where they might want to go and have at least a working set of priorities for what they want to select from out there in the world because there might be a lot of stuff they see but <clears throat> they don't want they want to be against this so it's not that anything out there is of equal value uh, and the cosmopolitan side of the cosmopolitan provincial distinction doesn't of course entail that at all but it is a matter of reassessing things and um, becoming um, Well, I guess you could say that you take more things into account. So a cosmopolitan will adopt views that are based on a wider range of options and having encountered many more things, whereas the provincial is more likely to take as valid whatever is inherited. The inherited culture is it, the end, whereas somebody that's been around. That's why, again, these missionaries are so important. So by the time you get <clears throat> to World War Two and with the when the uh American government uh is uh and, and the the foundations and the universities are interested in uh in dealing more with the rest of the world, which they haven't done much, it's the missionaries and the missionary children that are on tap. So like when the universities develop the foreign area studies programs uh during the twenty years after World War <clears> Two, <throat> it's overwhelmingly Missionary sons, like Edwin Reischauer, the guy that is the big developer of Japanese studies, he's a missionary child. Uh, w. Norman Brown, the big guy in the development of South Asian studies, is a missionary child. A lot of examples like this, the same applies in Chinese studies. There was oodles of them. Or when, uh, <clears throat> it's true, the OSS, the the, uh, the uh, success, the predecessor to the CIA, when the, when the American uh, intelligence agency during World War II gets going, they, they need somebody who knows about these different parts of the world. They need spies who are good in Arabic. Well, missionary sons are the guys who know. There's a great case that I came across. uh, A guy who had been uh, born and raised in Beirut, Lebanon, Presbyterian missionary family, and um, uh, he was actually a veteran of World War I. So he's a a Marine veteran, he comes back into the uh, into the Marines in 1941, at the start of World War II, and instantly the uh, the head of the OSS, Wild Bill Donovan, who desperately needs spies who know Arabic, latches onto this guy. So he gets him from the Marine Corps and says, you're going to be my guy in North Africa, all of it. So you've got this missionary son who goes to North Africa, and um, he's fluent in uh, in Arabic, uh, and he can recite long passages of the Koran in three Arabic dialects. So he's the guy that you want to go out and deal with the Moors, as he called them. Um, and later on, he does the same thing in, uh, in, in Saudi Arabia and Yemen. So he's somebody who can actually organize against the Nazis in Vichy-controlled uh, northern uh, um, in Algeria and Tunisia and uh, Morocco at that time, <clears throat> because he's, uh, he's fluent in these languages. There are a number of examples like that of where somebody will, um, it's, the, it's the missionary children who will be brought in to perform these services. So they, they also bring back <clears throat> this sense, like this guy that I mentioned to continue for a, for a moment, Colonel Bill Eddy, he's a big uh, defender of Arab nationalism. So after the war, he's, he goes into the CIA He's one of the designers of the CIA, and he keeps telling Truman, you know, we got to be tuned in with these Arab nationalists. I mean, the future of that part of the world, we have big interests over there, and they rather like us. They don't like the British Empire. They like us. Well, what happens in the dynamic of the Cold War, of course, is that the United States adopts more and more of a British Empire perspective. So we do the coup in Iran in 1953, throwing out Mossadegh, putting in the Shah, and and, uh, and we support Israel against the, uh, against the uh, the Arab states. so there are a lot of things that change, but what's interesting about about the missionary sons is that they were the ones who were the most pro-arab at a time when there was very deep anti-Arab prejudice in the United States.
0: Sure. Well, it's just like Lawrence of Arabia. Yes. I mean, if, you, if you're out there, you yeah. know the people, you speak the language, you're able to communicate with them, you get their needs and right. desires and, and so forth, you, it's, a, it's a tolerance issue as well as, right. a, as a human issue. And, and so yeah. there's, there's a tactical aspect to right. this. Clearly, if I want to run right. the American intelligence service, I want to have people who speak all sorts of different languages. And, and very few people
1: did. It was tough. Right.
0: Get out of Wichita. You know. I mean, I, w- I yeah. want people who, have, who can penetrate and, and see the world. But there's also a tolerance issue. There's a moral issue. There's an understanding of what makes us all human. Right. And and this is, as I understand it, what the ecumenical Protestants really reflected and put front and center as part of their agenda. This is what Reinhold Niebuhr was right. was was enunciating and, and was firmly believing, albeit within eventually somehow some synoptic Christian context. Right. But the, these fundamental values of looking outside, being a universalist. Right. Um Maybe I can just switch gears for sure, a little bit. Sure, of course. Um, I'd like to go to um, religion and science right. and talk about that, because you've you've written an awful lot about that and studied about that. Um, again, I think there's a strong ecumenical Protestant link, which I now know because I've read your book, um, through William James. So I'd like to talk about that mm-hmm. uh, a, a little bit. Um, but first, I'd just like to back up and say, my understanding of of these categories that you put into play for testing the universality of one's beliefs. One, we already talked about this so-called demographic diversification, right. where you bounce it off people in in Chile and right. in India and see what they right. believe, and if it holds up, maybe there's something there, or maybe there isn't. And the other, of course, is what most secularists believe, which is that as we develop better and better understanding of the physical world, as our science progresses, as our harnessing of science via technology progresses as we get a clear understanding of the law-like nature of the world around us, we have less and less recourse to necessarily look at things in a mystical, spiritual, right. religious way. Right. And so this notion of science being the great, uh, I don't know how you would say it, defeater, peeling back religious mm-hmm. superstition is something which has existed for a long time. You right. mentioned in the 19th century that Most intellectuals thought that religion was going to be on its way out as science marches forwards. Um, So so now we come to William James, as I understand it, uh, someone I've studiously avoided reading and and still have, by the way. I've just read about him now. So uh, thanks to you, I know a little bit through you. So you may be completely wrong, in which case I know nothing about William James. But assuming that you know what you're talking about, um, here's William James, who's... uh, who seems like a very interesting figure to me, because he seems to be claimed by just about everybody for right. just about every possible He's He's right? Yeah. <laughs> and he writes about, uh, the, I guess there are two things that I wanted to point out. One is uh, something which completely fascinated me, which was this, uh, this interchange that he had with H.K. Clifford no, yeah, w, um, sorry, yeah, W. K. Clifford. Sorry, W. K. Clifford. I don't know his initials, but I do know I know of Clifford because I know of these things called Clifford algebras in mathematics. So yeah. I just knew yeah. of Clifford a as a mathematician. Yeah. I had no idea he wrote he, no. he wrote anything about this. Right. So there's this interchange um, between uh, and James and Clifford, and according to you, uh, James has a wonderful time. Um, Wildly misstating the actual right. fundamental views. <laughs> That's exactly right. Yeah. <laughs> what, this, <laughs> what this guy, what this guy did. But I guess what I what I wanted to to get to, because I should probably ask a uh, ask a question, is it seems that James's major agenda was somehow marrying a scientific uh, scientific understanding with religious experience. Yeah. And and so through the variety of religious experiences, whether he was trying to make it a rigorous scientific field or what have you, trying to allow for some sort of simultaneous presence of religion within a world that was dominated by science. Is that a fair...?
1: It is certainly the case that he is preoccupied with the religion science issue. And he um, is uh, afraid that science will eliminate religion altogether. He doesn't want this, and uh, his genius, you might say, is uh, turning his anxiety about this into terms that were so creative that lots and lots of people found them helpful in dealing with this. Now, even though I think Clifford was a much clearer thinker than James was, James has been much more influential. A lot of people don't even read Clifford. That paper of mine where I go back and read Clifford is unusual in the literature because usually people just assume that James was correct about Clifford when he wasn't. But that's not, the, that's not maybe so important as what James did. And what James did was to uh, denounce secularism with such vitriol that the very halting affirmations that he simultaneously made for religion were taken much more seriously than they would have been had they been examined in a vacuum that did not include his polemical anti-secularism, especially his attacks on Clifford. Because if you read his great works, the varieties of religious experience, pragmatism, the will to believe. You see that um, he's surrounded as he is by this Protestant culture, all these New England liberal Protestants that he's close to. William James was unable to affirm a single Christian doctrine. So the religion that he affirms is so general that it reduces to a very abstract theism but even there he vacillates on this and at times he says he's not really a theist other times he is yet the varieties of religious experience provides what 400 pages of these religious experiences Uh, and james encourages his readers to achieve intimate, empathic identification with all of these people who are experiencing this religious experience. So it comes across as being very sympathetic with especially the Protestant examples. It's an anti-Catholic book in ways that a lot of people haven't figured out because the the religious experience that he cites negatively are almost always these Catholic saints. So it's a very Protestant book. It is a book which you can see as an effort to uh, vindicate uh, uh, an enlightened liberal Protestant culture in an age of science by, uh, by denuding the religious tradition of anything that might possibly conflict with science, but yet covering your ground by being adamantly angry against all secularists. So that's the combination that really works for William James for a very long time. I would say that James is a great secularist. Uh, He's a a great secularizer, I should say, in that he uh, provides a lot of Protestants with the bridges of the sort that I'm talking about later with these ecumenical Protestants in the 1940s, 50s, 60s. He is a great bridge, and many of the uh, theologians that follow him that try to be Jamesian Christians find themselves going around and round in circles. And there are a number of these books in the teens and through the 1920s that I've read and found fascinating because they will they will say, we're gonna, we're gonna affirm William James's view of Christianity. But then it turns out they don't have that much to affirm. <laughs> um, and so they're very much trapped. <clears throat> and then the um, fundamentalists Go after them and saying, "Well, you're not really a Christian at all, are you?" And then they they will sort of respond like there's one guy, uh, Ames I think at the University of Chicago Div School. He says, "Well, you know the trouble with the Bible, is that it's an outrageously overrated book." <laughs> well, you know, talk about that. You're really on the edge of leaving the community of faith if that's your view of the Bible. So these these are James's followers. So the people who follow James, who actually read him, uh, are entrapped. Now there's another group of followers of James that don't read him uh, with the depth that I think is appropriate. And Charles Taylor, the big theologian and philosopher, is an example of I mean, that. He's a Catholic, yeah. As well. <clears throat> well, so there's a long tradition of using William James's "Will to Believe" and the varieties of religious experience as a uh, validator as a, as a way of saying that religion is okay. So, uh, so Taylor is a, among the people who should know better. He's such a bright guy and such a terrific philosopher. But I use him as an example just to show that there is this tradition of not really understanding James historically, but cherry picking the quotes and his anti-secularism. So one of the reasons that I wrote the two essays that you're talking about in After Cloven Tongues of Fire was to get out there the historical James. What is the historic function of William James and his function, I would argue, is in providing a series of bridges out of Protestantism toward post-Protestant secularism of the sort that he himself stood on the edge of. You can see this in James from 1882 all the way through his death in, in, in 1910. It's quite dramatic, actually, to see his writing. He will come right up to it, right up to it and stop, right up to it. And as we said in the 60s, there's something to be said for breaking on through to the other side. He didn't.
0: He, of course, is perhaps one of the first and certainly one of the most notorious individuals in terms of being on record trying to say something significant about science and religion and the interchange between them. But this is a debate which has carried over into the American mainstream. Right. Um, and we have most recently had this neo-atheist movement right. led by the so-called four right. horsemen of the right. atheistic apocalypse, right. one of whom has uh, deceased, unfortunately, right. Christopher Hitchens, but the right. others, like Dan Dennett and yeah, still going Sam strong. Harris, and uh, who's, who's the fourth one? I can't remember. Um, uh, who's there? There's, oh, Richard Dawkins, yeah. of course. Um, so uh, there is this uh, picking up on... Perhaps I should just back up altogether and picking up on the criticism that the evangelicals had against uh, William James that says, well, you're just a secularist. And, and again, establishing this line between believers of the true faith and science on the other side, or, or secular views or what have you. Nowadays, we have uh, very uh, heated arguments in the public sphere in the United States about uh, how religion is uh, toxic, how religion is childish, we must be able to move forwards into a secular worldview, we're being held back. Um, And so there are two things which which occurred to me as I was reading your book before I throw it over to you. The first is that, again, I think one has to make a distinction between religion as evangelical religion and religion in this ecumenical Protestant tradition that you've been talking about. And in fact, some of the things that I thought were quite interesting is some of the spokespeople, this Reinhold uh, Niebuhr, was actually accusing people like Billy Graham of having a childlike faith. That's right. And and not actually being responsible in terms of scientific understanding and modern understanding. So this is neither new nor something which is unheard of from people of a religious persuasion. So just to portray it as those of a completely atheistic or agnostic, fully secular belief against those of a religious persuasion is actually misrepresenting not only what could be the case, but what has been the case, actually, historically. Um, The the second point is that, again, as as a non-American, I look at this and think, this is a a bit weird, because not too many other places in the world, maybe with the exception of the United Kingdom with Richard Dawkins, but even then, is this really a big deal? I mean, people really don't Care that much right. about that. It's pretty well accepted that, yeah, we live in the modern world yeah. and so forth, and reasonably increasingly secular, and people can believe whatever they want to believe and so forth. Um, so, you have written about uh, the neo atheists, and Sam Harris in particular, that he would do well to recognize this historical fact right. of many ecumenicals who had a very forward thinking. Right. A scientifically responsible view and be able to be aware of the history and not misrepresent not only the present case of the United States but the past of the United States and right. its great traditions right is that is that a fair well,
1: no I, I think uh, yeah I, I am saying things like that I, I think that um, the there are several dimensions of this that invite a little bit more uh, public scrutiny than I think have have been applied so far one is these new atheists <clears throat> um, have a series of objections to what they call religion in general that are actually quite specific to conservative, orthodox, evangelical, fundamentalist exactly. religions. That's who they're talking a Difficulty about. with the attacks on the new atheists is that too many of their critics say <clears throat> You guys don't understand. There's all this sophisticated religion. There's all us ecumenical Protestants and all us post-Vatican II Catholics. And you're not paying any attention to us the end. Now, I think that's true as far as it goes. I think that's a valid criticism of the new atheists. The problem is that the new atheists are calling attention to a set of ideas that are still very widespread in the United States and that the ecumenical protestants and the liberal catholics would be better off attacking those ideas and the new atheists are on to what's wrong with these ideas but again that goes back to the thing that the that the liberal religious people are too afraid of coming out strongly against the conservatives. That would, would fracture the community of faith. So they dismiss the new atheists for not understanding how sophisticated their religion is, but they fail to acknowledge that the new atheists are really right about a lot of American religion. So that's the, <clears throat> well not conundrum, but that's a, a spot that a lot of the conversation is in. So I'm actually more sympathetic with the new atheists than a lot of people are, because I think that they continue to call attention to a lot of obscurantist ideas that are still very widespread. So they they are performing a valuable function. I think though that their successor will do a much better job, and that is that Philip Kitcher, a philosopher at Columbia, whom I would recommend that you talk to as a book uh, on secular humanism which will be coming out in uh, about two months well, he's a and very celebrated man yeah you very know very the guy. okay you know about Kitcher okay well Kitcher <clears throat> has a critique of religion which is much better than anything that comes out of the new atheists so I think that the I'm hoping that Phil's work will uh, supplant the new atheists and pr- and, and be harder to dismiss. I'm, whether, I'm skeptical because whether I don't that think his press agent is as, uh, is as good as the Well, guys. there's that. <laughs> yeah, that, that's certainly true. Although I, as an endorser of the book, at least I know that the press agent sent it to me. But uh, <laughs> that's not going to carry near as far if he'd have got Dawkins' thing, but I don't know if he did or not. So the, the conversation about the new atheist is, I'm saying, more important than a lot of the press has granted, but it's important on different kinds of grounds. Um, I think also the... Um, the uh the the new atheists are a sign of the resurgence of a style of religious affirmation that many people had assumed was dead and that's why your earlier comment is correct that most people aren't worried about this anymore but in the united states it's suddenly come up so that's one thing that's caused it but another thing <clears throat> the rise of Islamic fundamentalism as a world reality has also generated some of this. A lot of Sam Harris has written actually against Islamic fundamentalism as a well, as yeah. American uh, evangelicalism. So that's one of the reasons that it's come about. But, but your earlier point is right that a lot of people have given up on this. I mean it used to be said that Bertrand Russell was the last Victorian because he still thought it was an act of great courage not to believe in God. And well, then you've got all these people now raising it again. But that, that feeling about Russell's angst in his writings of the 1910s and 1920s was a, a sign of the of the passing of that set of preoccupation on the part of a lot of, uh, of, uh, of European intellectuals. Yeah.
0: Let's focus on the United States, though. Yeah. And let's talk about the importance, which is something that you've also uh, written quite a bit about and believe quite fervently in, of exchange in the public domain of religious ideas, particularly when people use religious ideas as a way of justifying or supporting public policy decisions. And again, this seems to me to be something which is, if not uniquely American, I'm sure there are people in Iran who <laughs> say <like> that, yeah. <laughs> it, 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 is, it is not... Terribly widespread in the world right. outside of the United States, it's it's right. certainly not in modern liberal democracies. You're certainly right that people will stand up and and resort to their affirmations of faith to justify a number of public policy decisions, right. and thereby end conversation, prevent debate, prevent examination of these issues. This is something I know you feel quite, you know. quite passionately about, um, and presumably you're hoping again that people of the ecumenical Protestant uh, persuasion who have a long history of open exchange, justifying beliefs, distinguishing between matters of personal faith and public policy, can step forwards into that into that vacuum.
1: Well, I hope more of them do. Uh, I think that you're right that that's an ongoing problem in American life, and it's uh, uh, it's very hard for politicians to escape this. I mean, if a po- I don't, uh, I just don't think that. um <clears throat> any avowed atheist has any chance of higher office in the United States. There was a a series of polls a few years ago. Uh, Now, polls are important in this context not because they tell you the truth, but because they tell you what people feel comfortable declaring. And so, uh, polls something like 95% would have no trouble voting for a black for president or a woman. But only 49 percent would vote for an atheist. Now that just that's a sign of the stigma that is still attached to atheism, and no politician can possibly go against that. <clears throat> so Obama plays to this. I mean, Obama is a fairly generic uh, ecumenical Protestant, I would say, and uh, you know he will bring in somebody like Rick Warren in the interest of pluralism. Uh, but he he continues to play this game as the politicians do. What's, what's particularly annoying to me is um, you'll have somebody like—well, there are a whole lot of these Republican politicians who are more into it—who will, who will tell the public that um, uh, you should vote for me because I'm a person of faith. So this is somehow relevant to the performance of their public duties. But you can't ask them a question about their faith, because if you do that, you're biased against religion. You're one of these arrogant intellectuals that's trying to tell the rest of the world what to think. Don't you respect the man's faith? It's his faith. So there's this kind of reaction. And <clears throat> it's very pernicious. So, um, so you have then uh, a whole domain of political justification, which is uh, ruled out, of public discussion. Now, if you were to decide that uh, religion is not relevant to public policy, then you could get away with perhaps not discussing it. Then you could say, well, this is a private matter. Exactly. And a lot of Democrats have done that, although they're being smoked out now and you know they have to sort of wax eloquent and get a picture of themselves coming out of church holding their Bible. Uh, this is a, uh, an ongoing reality that maybe will be the last thing to change in terms of the secularization of the United States. One thing that could advance it, I think, <clears throat> would be a robust discussion of religious ideas. And the way to do this is to not start with the politicians, they're hopeless, but to get the rest of the society uh, to be talking about this more forthrightly. And that's, again, I come back to these liberal Protestants, to these ecumenical Protestants, if they would come out and say what they really think about the ideas that are current at Fuller Theological Seminary in Pasadena, the greatest of the evangelical stuff, if they would come out and say what they thought about that and risk uh, losing some of their constituency, I think it would advance the civic health of the society, would raise the intellectual level of the society, would render what religion shall continue to exist more defensible. But they're caught in this, and an example of of their travail is all of these uh, the traditional liberal seminaries, specific school of religion, Chicago Div School, Union Theological, Harvard Div, Yale Div? <clears throat> They're all sort of in flux. They're in free fall. There are not not that many uh, smart young people want to become ministers anymore. Uh, so what's to happen to these institutions? So the place that you might find leadership on this is. Um, is not coming out as leaders, they're struggling to find what their institutional role would be. I don't want to pretend to know more about that than I do, I'm not on the inside of those conversations, but I'm mentioning it because I think the apparent collapse from within of the ecumenical Protestant div schools is a a sign of the continued decline of uh, courage on the part of the ecumenical Protestant leadership, that they're they're in retreat. Um, they're accepting more evangelicals into their own schools than they used to. They're making all of these compromises. Some of the meetings that I've gone to, <clears throat> I've heard them say that, uh, that it's, uh, it's necessary to meet these people halfway. Well, you know, for the last couple hundred years they've been meeting secularists halfway, and a good thing too. But now they're afraid of this. I had a particularly interesting exchange with a guy who was the former president of the Universalist Unitarian Universalist Association. I was suggesting, hey, we need a robust public discussion of religious ideas. You guys should lead it. The Unitarians, this is the tradition of Theodore Parker and William Mallory Channing. These were the people who did more than any other denominational community to liberalize American Christianity. Do it now. He said, no, if we do that we will lose. Because the whole culture and the educational style of the United States is such that if you are too uh, aggressive and attacking the evangelicals, you will diminish your standing even more. So he then, like a lot of the others, uh, want to make common cause on specific projects. Like some of the evangelicals are now interested in uh, environmentalism, save the environment. And they're interested in... uh, of poverty programs. So what you do is that you uh, join <coughs> pragmatically with what is basically a secular program. So you can achieve some you, good in some right. Dominant. Yeah, and I understand that. I mean, I can see why they do that. But uh, since I believe that many of the things that are problematic about the culture of the United States today have to do with the continued currency of a lot of obscurantist ideas that cannot meet modern standards of cognitive plausibility, then I'm very eager for us to have a national conversation about those things. And when you look <clears throat> at where the um, where the most uh, conservative of the political voices come from, they very often come from these evangelical sites so that there is a connection between obscurantist theological ideas and these reactionary political uh, ideas. And I think this is something that we'd be better off if there was a more uh, uh, open debate about it. I don't see very many signs of it. I think that um, the press is afraid of this. I think that the, why is, the, why is the press afraid of this? Uh, the press, uh, you can't go too far. Also, let's see, maybe there's some exceptions to this, although uh, I'm wondering, somebody like Chuck Todd, wondering that some of the uh, Can't Imagine Gregory doing this. Um, there's a, you know, the, these are big businesses. And so there's the, uh, I, I guess I would be, without knowing an awful lot about it, I would be concerned But that the big media business are reluctant to take the kind of chances.
0: But it seems seems what you're saying uh, needs to be carefully examined. Because from my perspective, it seems that there are two distinct points that you're making. You're not saying everybody should be secular in the United States. You're not saying we should do away with religion or religion is silly or anything like this. It seems to me what you're saying, so correct me if I'm wrong, is point number one, religion and religious views should be a private matter. And if people want to, if people believe in X or believe in Y or whatever it is, that's in their particular private domain, and that's fine. We should respect that. We should encourage that. You're probably even willing, I would submit, to say that for political reasons, yes, it would be advantageous for people like Obama to have pictures taken of them going into church or going out of church or carrying around a Bible, or what have you, because we live in a democracy, and people feel comfortable with people of their faith, yeah. and so that doesn't, I don't think, particularly bother, yeah. you, bother. I don't think yeah. that bothers you. But I think there is a line that is crossed when people start invoking religious principles, sectarian religious principles, to justify yeah. public policy Precisely. in a world, in a country, which is supposed to, again, apply these things universally to That's people. Right. So it is just completely inappropriate in a democracy to say, I believe in in public policy ABC or D and the reason I do it is because it necessarily resonates with my particular sectarian beliefs and then impose that on a body politic which may or may not subscribe to those particular beliefs that goes against fundamental democratic principles and therefore if you're saying these are my public policy positions then you are f- be it because they're in, you're inspired by the word of the, of the Bible, or because you were visiting aliens last night, or you watched no. a television program, or what have you, and you're saying, these are my public policy issues, then in in fairness, in a, in a non-sectarian democratic plurality, you have to justify them on their own grounds, without appealing to your particular... Sectarian beliefs; otherwise, it's just bullying, basically. Otherwise, you're forcing people to believe. Isn't that Isn't that? Yeah, the well, distinction I, mean, I would put it this making? way. I think
1: I think the the root distinction that we're looking for there <clears throat> is between motivation and justification. And one might have motives uh, that are uh, that you you believe that Israel is right because of the way that you read uh, the Bible. Okay, but <clears throat> when you are talking about what American policy should be toward the Middle East, it should not be biblically based. It should be because of an analysis of something that could be potentially accepted by somebody who did not operate on a biblical base. So I think uh, policies uh, might be appealing to an individual citizen of the United States, a politician, because of their own personal orientation, their religion, okay, but when it comes to defending the policy prescription, defending the legislation, defending whatever is at issue, then the justification should be one that welcomes everybody into it. In other words, it should be a justification which is particular to the polity rather than particular to the religion that might inform it. So the significance of the distinction is not to say (coughs) people shouldn't be religious, but that they should recognize uh, that when they're operating as citizens of a polity, they have an obligation that is specific to that, to carry out those arguments. Right. And much of life isn't political. Much of life is private. Much of life has to do with other kinds of activities. So this is not an argument against churches, uh, but it is an argument for uh, a division of labor and for recognizing the value of a secular pluralist polity, that when you look at the history of the historically Christian West, it's been a struggle to get here. And I always like to remind people that uh, with regard to the church-state separation and uh, that the Confederate states of America put God in the Constitution because they knew it was significant that the United States did not have it there. They got the message and they acted on it. So there are these differences. I think you're entirely correct, and you're reading of me on that.
0: So, what's wrong with CNN, or maybe John Stewart would be better still, or Colbert, or, uh, whatever? Could do it. What's what's wrong with having this brought into the public consciousness that this is not anti-religion? This is this is not impinging on people's right to believe or or. Even the power of the evangelical movement, they can do whatever they want to win the hearts and minds of believers across the world. No one is suggesting anything to the contrary, but merely saying there is the private sphere and there is the public sphere, and if we believe in these particular principles of... Uh, of our body politic, according to our theories of justice, and you you refer to Rawls, yeah. and you refer to, in fact, Obama himself yeah. saying something very yeah. Rawlsian and, and, in right. various uh, speeches. That this is something which is already out there. Let's have a debate about that, about those particular principles. Why would the media shy away from engaging in that particular effort?
1: Well, I don't have a good answer to that. I mean, I was speculating a while ago <clears throat> uh, that it had something to do with corporate interests and relations to advertisers and the embeddedness. I mean, that they, the, the big um, networks, even the cable ones, are sort of too large to fail in the sense that they have to maintain their connections. I don't have a good answer to that. I would prefer, of course, that they do exactly what you describe, that they convene such a conversation. But I've seen very little, um, very little signs of anybody wanting to do that. The closest I've seen to that <clears throat> is the Center for American Progress, has convened several of these uh, consultations to talk. Oh, that's a big. Yeah, excuse me. That's a big think tank in Washington. It's the most important of the left liberal think tanks, okay. uh, run by John Podesta. It's actually quite close to the Obama uh, administration, and I've done a couple things with them. E.J. Dion and I did a, a sort of the debate there a few years ago, um, in which they brought in about what, oh, I don't know, fifty or sixty heads of of religious service organizations, where we talked about this matter of how uh, religion can play a more progressive role in the society, but the thing broke apart on the lines that I indicated earlier, that the there were a group of people who felt that our early task should be to recognize the importance that Catholic hostil- hospitals should not have to provide abortion services or even distribute. Contraceptives, and that mm. this was what was really important if we wanted to establish rapport with religious groups. Well, you can imagine how that went over with some of the rest of us. So, but they, the, the, the um, I'm struggling for another example. The, the, I would say the Center for American Progress is the space <clears throat> where I have heard the most interest in pushing in this direction. And I don't know what their next. I've been in touch with them for a couple of years. I haven't seen. Uh, any of the commentators show much interest in this. Uh, one of the Times guys is pretty good on this. Frank Bruno, one of them is pretty good. Yeah, but the other guy, the Times has this guy, Douthat, who's very much on the other side. I mean, the argument that you hear a lot is that the whole idea of the religion-political distinction is a mistake and that we should pull back from this and understand that a peculiarity of the American constitutional tradition since 1789 is that it's just wrong
0: so you're advocating public discourse I am so if you advocate public discourse then you are welcoming views and positions and statements from people across That's the right. political divide yes so you're uh, w- welcome people of a of a very different persuasion of they course. can contribute of course um, but it seems Difficult for me to fathom why, if this is an issue, and it seems to me, not just personally, but from other people I talk to, that this is a growing concern amongst uh, many Americans, that there should be wider debate. And I'm coming all the way back full circle in a way to this concept of American exceptionalism. So you almost had me convinced that America's really not all that exceptional, right. and that the secularist, ViBarian yep. view actually is manifested, and right. you just have to look more carefully, you look yeah. at these, these ecumenical guys, yeah. and everything is fine. But now, I'm thinking... It's a matter it's of a, degree. It's You guys are a bit wacky. It's, it's, I mean, it's, come it's on. a matter of degree. No,
1: I, I think so, and that's... Uh, I, I, I it, it is a matter of degree, and the fact that... Uh, there is all this reactionary religion out there, and that it's so deeply connected with the uh, Sarah Palin, Rick Perry type politics, and that uh, uh, state universities are under all of this pressure from these uh, boards of regents to uh, act in terms of uh, of these conservative ideas. I was struck here a couple of years ago: the uh, the uh, the education board of the state of Texas was debating for a while. Eliminating from the curricular goals of the public schools of Texas training and critical thinking. And the reason that they thought maybe they should drop that is because they were afraid it would undercut the values of the church and the home. Okay. Now, there you have the extreme provincialism, all right, but the fact that that idea could even get discussed <clears throat> is an example of where you're right. Uh, as a non-American to think that we're really pretty crazy after all. So my arguments about the vindication of classical secularization theory need to be understood in terms of degree.
0: <laughs> that sounds like a very eloquent, long-winded academic cop-out, but anyway. Oh.
1: You could understand, <laughs> yes.
0: Last question. Yes. Uh, I'm going to ask you to speculate a little bit, and um, and tell me what you think the United States, if not the world, is going to look like in terms of religious movements in 50 years. Because you point out, in the 1950s in America, those leading intellectuals, the lights of the ecumenical Protestant movement, did not believe that they were on a one-way road to perdition, as it were, right. and that they would be standing. They right. held uh, positions of great stature and great influence. They would have been, I think, very surprised, it's fair to say, Uh, what would have happened to their world in 50 or 60 years, which makes one wonder that uh, perhaps the people who are on top today will be very surprised at what will happen 50 or 60 years from now, or not. Based upon your experience and your historical knowledge, how do you see the United States of America in 2065?
1: We historians are more resistant sure. to this kind of thinking, uh, and, and you 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 understand that. <laughs> so so that's a, um, <clears throat> harder for me to uh, to engage at all. Um, but uh, but I'll give it uh, a wing uh, with the understanding that this is not the sort of stuff that I'm as invested in. Okay, I'm pretty heavily invested in my argument about the role of ecumenical Protestantism in American history, pretty heavily invested in a lot of the other things that we've talked about. But when it comes to predictions, I don't have a lot invested in one prediction as opposed to another. But I will venture that the education gap in the United States will continue to propel more and more educated people in secular directions and will entrap more and more impecunious poor people in religious cultures. That the salient consideration would then be the hardening, the sharpening of the class distinction, of the uh, greater and greater gap between those who are well-off and those who are not, the diminution of strong public support for education. Uh, These things, it seems to me, coupled with the way that the um, electoral system uh, produces uh, Congress and the Senate and the kinds of public policies that will eventuate from a heavily Republican, even uh, minority-dominated national uh, government, these things seem to me to make it likely that we will continue with a bifurcation so that I see us becoming a more and more divided society. I'm not happy about that. it's conceivable that this will eventually become so frightening that there will be more uh, people motivated to try to stop that. Uh, and we do have in a number of our pundits, in uh, my colleague uh, Bob Reich and uh, you know Krugman, I mean, there are a lot of people, Christoph, who are whining about this, and I think they're right. But um, in the absence of more capacity to uh, control, basic resources in the society, and to uh, provide better education to more people, then I would be afraid that the bifurcation will continue and that secularization will imply increasingly to the more educated classes, and that um, Obama was right even though he was blasted for it when he went into the Pennsylvania-Appalachian area and said these people are poor and they cling to their religion. I think that's true. Best I can do. Sorry. That's good. There's no reason to apologize. Anything else? Nope. Anything I? Uh, no.
0: Nope. You want to discuss? No. Nope. This was great. Thank you very much, David. No. Nope. This was a lot. Of fun. Appreciate the thing. Yeah. That's good. I hope you enjoyed this reformatted podcast. As mentioned at the outset, this conversation is also available both as an individual ebook and as part of the ebook and paperback conversations about religion, along with separate discussions with David J. Goldberg, Niall Green, Eleanor Nesbitt, and Mary Rubin. Those interested in more information about Ideas Roadshow are directed to IdeasRoadshow.com, while those who are curious about me and other projects I'm involved in are recommended to visit HowardBurton.com. Thanks very much for listening, and I hope you'll tune in to another Ideas Roadshow podcast on the New Books Network soon. We release a new one each Wednesday.